you love us. We're grateful, God, that you care for us. You're mindful of our frail frame, that we are finite and you are infinite. You are the creator and we are creatures. And apart from you, O oh God, we can do nothing. Father, help your people to hear your word by the aid of your spirit, that you would help the preacher preach for the glory of your name. May we leave this place saying it was good to be in the house of the Lord. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we know, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And on that Sunday, I plan to address a uh, topical sermon. I want to address the question, is Jesus fully God? Is Jesus fully God? That'll be next Sunday. And in that sermon, I want to explain why Christmas is critically important to our salvation. Is Jesus fully God? But for today, I want to ask a different question. It is a topical sermon, not necessarily expositional today. But I want to address this question. Is Jesus fully human? Is Jesus fully human? I did not ask, was Jesus human? No. Is, present tense, Jesus fully human? And why this question is critically important to our salvation. As Pastor Vladimir said earlier, our text for today is 2 John verse 6, which is really a running verse into the main verse, which is verse 7. And if you have that text open, just quick reminder here. And verse 6 says this, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So the apostle John is the author of this text, and this was written prior to A.D. 110. So within the first hundred years of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this context, the Apostle John is saying to Christians at that time that one of the marks of a genuine Christian, one of the distinguishing marks of a genuine Christian is their love. Their love for one another. And the Apostle John loves those who are walking in this love. Walking simply means their lifestyle and their behavior lines up with the biblical definition of love. And that they're walking in God's truth and walking in God's love just as they were taught. And they obey God's word. There's a distinction that we as Christians should understand very quickly that you can understand and know God's word, but unless you apply it by obeying it, then we're not honoring the Lord. And so the Apostle John is saying, not only do you know the truth, you were taught the truth, but you're actually living it out. You're obeying God's truth. You're actually loving one another. And I commend you for obeying God. And so he encourages 
the church. I know that if you read the beginning of this text, it says he's writing to the, the elect lady and to the elect people. This is just metaphorical language of him writing to the church. He's writing to the brethren and to the sisterin. That's not a real English word, but that makes sense. And so he's writing to the brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying that if you're a Christian, you're actually walking in this love. You're not doing it to earn God's favor. You're not doing it so you can get to heaven and be forgiven. But he's actually saying you're doing this because you want to honor the Lord. You're walking in love because you want to honor Christ, our Savior. And so the Apostle John, the purpose of him writing this letter to Christians is because there's a false teaching that is happening within that time frame, within the churches of God, namely docetism. You'll see that in your bulletin insert, docetism. And Pastor Corey said earlier, he's like, brother, you're taking us to seminary today. And I'm like, no, I'm not trying to take you to seminary, but it's very important to understand what this word means because it was prevalent back then in the first century. And though these people may be dead, they're still alive through their philosophies that have come down church history. Though they be dead, yet they still speak. And so it's very important to understand what was happening in biblical times and what's happening today and what Christmas really means. And so for John, this is such a serious matter that he says this. He says, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, talking about the incarne, the incarnation in meat. We don't say in meat, but Jesus came in flesh. He took on a body of flesh. And he says, anyone who does not confess that Jesus actually came in the flesh, he says he's a deceiver and the antichrist. And so we've got to take these two words of deceiver and antichrist and remind ourselves it's in the context of what? Is Jesus human or is Jesus not human? If you say that Jesus is not fully human, you're deceived, and you're the Antichrist. But if you say that Jesus is fully human, then you're walking in God's truth as you were taught. And so we understand what deception is. We understand what a deceiver is. A deceiver is someone who intentionally leads people away from truth and into a lie. And in this situation, away from God's truth and the gospel. And the Antichrist is anyone who opposes God's truth. We understand Antichrist in eschatological terms or end times as we love to talk about from time to time. And we say, oh, that person, he's the Antichrist. But in this context, the Antichrist is anybody who opposes Christ and his truth and his word. You know, I love being a Reformed Baptist. And some will say, the Pope, he's the Antichrist. Because every time he speaks ex cathedra, he's speaking 
the very words of God. But he's demented and twisted, and he twists the word of God. Therefore, he's the Antichrist. Well, there is a lot of truth to that, but my simple, humble opinion is anybody in that office is taking on Antichrist duties and responsibilities. Anybody in that office. But we have to go back to the main question. Is Jesus fully God or is he not? And what does that mean for you? And what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, let me explain. The true humanity of Jesus has always been assaulted from day one by heretics. And I don't throw that word heresy and heretics out lightly. I just don't say that just for the sake of saying it. But in church history, there are two heresies. There's many heresies, by the way. But there's two heresies that are in your bulletin that I want to address today. It's docetism and monophysitism. Docetism and monophysitism. I'm going to spend more time on the first one as opposed to the second one. So bear with me. But docetism comes from the Greek word of dokeo. Dokeo simply means in English to seem or to appear. To seem or to appear. And this position believes that Jesus is totally divine. They do not have a problem with Jesus being deity. What they have a problem with is his humanity. They're saying that he simply appeared to be human. He seemed to be human, but he wasn't really human. He was actually immune. This is their position. He was actually immune from any kind of real-life human experience. For example, he didn't really experience birth or fatigue or thirst or hunger or suffering and death. So as human beings, us, who have a human nature, we have experienced all these things to some degree, have we not? That's what it means to have a human nature, to be human. So then what's the point? And the point is this, God, at the very beginning, God made everything. And if you remember Genesis 1 and 2, the repeating theme was, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good after each day. And it was good. And the first time things were not good is when man was by himself and when sin came into the world. Genesis chapter 3. And sin came into the world through the first man. Yes, it's, if you want to be technical, Eve sinned first. But because Adam was created first, he was known as the federal head of the human race. And because he sinned, his sin was imputed or given to all of his posterity, given to his human race, the lineage of the human race. You know, we talk about imputation as Christ imputing his righteousness to us, which is true, and our sin is imputed to Christ, and he goes up on the cross, which is also true, but we also need to remember there's a third imputation. 
that when Adam sinned against God, his sin was imputed to the entire human race. That includes you. That includes me. That includes those who come after us. That includes everybody before us in human history. The entire human race is decimated by sin through our federal head, Adam. So sin is humanity's number one problem. Let me say that very clearly. Sin is humanity's number one problem. See, if we think that a lack of money is our number one problem, all we have to do is ask for overtime, work a second job, pay off bills, save a little money, and oh, by the way, hire a financial planner. If that's our number one problem, lack of money, do all those things and hire a financial planner. But if our number one problem happens to be health, then what we should do is eat less, exercise more, eat our vegetables like good little boys and girls, take our vitamins, get a good night's rest, drink less caffeine, and call the doctor when we're sick. If our health is our number one problem. Or, if our number one problem is big government and corrupt politicians, then all we have to do every two years and every four years is vote in the right politicians and vote out the wrong politicians, and everything in this world in our country would be perfect. If that's our number one problem, then that's all we need to do. But if we actually believe the Bible and that sin is our number one problem, you don't need a financial planner. You don't need a doctor. You don't need a politician. What you need and what I need is a savior. That's what we need. Sin is a violation of God's law, God's word, God's will. God says do this. God says don't do this. We know what is right from wrong. You don't have to come to church on a Sunday and open up the Bible to figure out what's right and what's wrong. God's law is written on your hearts and my hearts and every other human being in the world. We know right from wrong. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's beside the point. We know right from wrong. You have been made in the image of God and God's law has been written upon your heart. When we sin against God, there's only two options at this point. When we sin against the holy God, God knows our sins. You may be able to hide your sin from me, and guess what? I may be able to hide my sin to, from you. But we can never hide our sin from God. God is the all-knowing God, and when we sin against the holy God, it's very personal. We think of sin as abstract, distant, cold, nebulous but when we sin against our creator god the holy god it's very personal to god and so at the end of our lives one way we deal with this sin is that god has every right to judge us for our sin and cast us into hell for all of eternity that doesn't sound very fun on christmas 
But we need to think about it from God's perspective. And I had this conversation last night with one of my young sailors. And I said to him, if somebody murdered your family, slaughtered your family, a serial murderer running through the street and slaughtered your family, broke into your house, killed all your family members, are you going to say to the judge, judge, you're a very loving judge. Please let this man go. Is that what you're going to say? Actually, if you were to be honest, you should say, Judge, you have a job to do. You have a law. And that law needs to be used at this point. And you judge this person and all that he said and all that he's done next to the very word of God. And if there's an infraction against the law of God, then do what is just. So, one option to deal with sin, personal sin, against God, which is personal, is that the sad thing is they're going to be judged and sent and cast into hell for all of eternity. That's option number one. Option number two is someone steps in or someone intervenes on behalf of the sinner, on behalf of you and I, as a substitute, and takes on God's full, holy wrath upon himself. But this person, this substitute, has to be fully human. He must be fully human. He cannot seem to be human or appear to be human, as the docetists would say. He actually has to be human. A human for human. It cannot be a dog for a human, cannot be a giraffe for a human, cannot be a cat for a human. And when we think about all the Old Testament sacrifices, none of that took away sin. I hope we understand that. None of that took away sin. The only sacrifice, according to Hebrews, that, take away, that takes away sin is the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. So, we must have a substitute who is human. But here's the difference between this human and us. He's holy. He's perfectly holy. He's sinless. He's perfectly righteous. He is without sin. This substitute must be fully human and sinless. A sinful human being dying for another sinful human being makes no sense, biblically, theologically, or any other world. A sinner dying for a sinner, what is the redemptive quality in that? But if the holy dies for the unholy, the perfect dies for the imperfect, the righteous dies for the unrighteous, the sinless dies for the sinners then there's something redemptive about that. There's something very special about that. Because apart from that, there is no hope, no forgiveness, no love of God. And there's no salvation. So, is Jesus fully human? In the docetic world, docetists believed several things 
And here are a few of them. They believe that the world, especially many societies during that time frame, believe that the flesh was sinful and evil in and of itself and that the spirit was good. Spirit good, body evil. A lot of Greek cultures, Persian cultures held to this dualistic philosophy. And to be fair to them, there was not one person, one leader that's credited as originating docetism. It kind of evolved over the first two to three hundred years of church history. But for the docetists, the very thought of God becoming a man in the person of Jesus was illogical, was actually unthinkable. For them, they would say, why would God, who is pure, perfect, spiritual, become a man, which means evil, wicked, because of the body, and then this person would suffer and die? In other words, docetists were anti-Christmas. Because Christmas is part one of the greatest love story the world has ever known. God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. And Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is part two of this greatest love story. The Savior's not dead, but he's alive. If you take away Christmas from Resurrection Sunday, you only have half the story. Docetics also believe that God was great, that God is spiritual, and as Christians, Bible believers, we would affirm that. Therefore, for God to become man in the person of Jesus, and I quote, as a helpless baby, requiring food and drink to survive, and spat upon, and beaten, and crucified, is below the great God. In other words, for Jesus to go through all this suffering and all this humiliation and all this pain is beneath the great God. And so the issue is not per se the gospel. They don't have a problem with the gospel. They don't have a problem with Jesus being divine. They have a problem with God becoming a man. How can anything good how can anything spiritual, how can anything pure mix with evil? That which is ugly, filthy, and decaying, a.k.a. a human body. Docetics, they also believed that Jesus wasn't the one who died upon the cross. They actually believed that the executioners, the Roman executioners, mistakenly crucified Simon of Serene, the one who carried the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? If you remember what was said earlier, is that for God to become man is unthinkable. So now they're forced to redefine who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for sinners. They're redefining and rewriting the entire story of Jesus. Does that sound familiar in any way? They said, how can God become man? What's the purpose of the incarnation? That's un, 
logical or illogical. And so for the docetists, their problem, if they're correct, is our problem. Because if they are correct, then there is no hope of God's forgiveness. There's no hope of peace. There's no forgiveness of sin. And by the way, there is no Christmas. This is a serious problem. And the Apostle John battles these docetists by saying, anyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, in the incarnation, that this person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. This is the first heresy. And I'll talk about here at the end of the sermon why and how that's relevant for us today. But I quickly, quickly want to address the second heresy, monophysitism. And if you have studied theology for some time, you know this name under the term of Eutychianism. Eutychianism by a person in the early church by the name of Eutyches. So this person, or this position, argued that Jesus was not really God, Jesus was not really human, but Jesus was this third position that makes no sense. He believed, or they believed, that Jesus had one nature, not two natures. Let me explain why that's important. The Bible is very clear that Jesus is one person. A person is defined as, you're a person, I'm a person. We can talk to each other. We can relate to one another. We can have a friendship or relationship with one another. You cannot have a relationship with this pulpit. That makes sense, right? You can only have a relationship with a real person. But as it applies to Jesus, Jesus is one person that you can have a relationship with, but the Bible's clear that he has two natures. He has a divine nature, and he has a human nature, and today I'm addressing his human nature. Next Sunday, I'll address his divine nature. But this monophysitism teaches that Jesus didn't have two natures, he has one nature. So basically, this is what happened. Jesus' human nature was swallowed up by his divine nature, which now creates this third category. He's not really human. He's not really God. He's this third category that doesn't exist in the Bible. So, the Bible's clear. Jesus is one person, two natures. And so, the monophysite position states that he's not truly God, and he's not truly man. And if that's the case, we have a serious problem. Because then we have to ask the question, dear Christians, who died on the cross? Who is the one who died on the cross? If Jesus is neither God and he is neither human, then who died on the cross? Because a qualified substitute who's dying for sinful humanity must be human himself, but yet perfect, sinless. He must die a, a real death on a real bloody cross. And so the blood of Jesus is the redemption price that is paid on behalf of his people. 
for those who repent and trust in him. So again, the question becomes, is Jesus fully human? We have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what the docetists say. It doesn't matter what the monophysites say. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what our government says. It doesn't matter what Hollywood says. What matters is what does the Bible actually say? Well, this qualified substitute who is to be human, he is fully human and sinless. He needed to be born of a woman. Galatians 4, verse 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Born of a woman, check. Why? Because of redemption of God's people. For those who repent and trust in Christ for salvation. Those who were born under the law, meaning they're under the weight and the responsibility of obeying God's law, even though they can't obey God's law perfectly. And so Christ is the one without sin. He's the one who fulfilled God's law perfectly throughout his entire life for 33 years. Real years, real human being, no sin. Most of us can't leave this room this morning without sinning against God in word and thought and deed. We can't even last 33 seconds once we walk out these doors without sinning against our great God. And yet God has given his one and only son for 33 straight years. Not one sin. There's something special about this Jesus. And so he fulfilled God's law perfectly. He didn't break any of God's law. He proactively satisfied every requirement of God's law. This is known as the act of obedience of Christ. And his death is the death that purchased those who could not help themselves. So in order for this substitute to be qualified on our behalf, he needed to be born of a woman. Galatians 4.4, check. But also, this human had to experience all the limitations and all the experiences of human life, which I spoke about earlier. Death. Hunger, pain, sadness. To be human, Jesus had to experience all of these human experiences and limitations. Jesus had a human body. Luke 2, verse 7. He had a human body. He, didn't, he wasn't spirit. He had a real human body. Luke 2, verse 7. But also Jesus experienced being tired and weary. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus makes this long trek, this long journey to a place called Samaria. And he meets this Samaritan woman, and he sits down at the well. Why? Because he's tired. He's weary from a long journey. That's another human experience, being weary. He also was thirsty. In John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said, I thirst that's another real human experience. Also, once we leave this place, 
We're going to go into this part of the church building that's called the fellowship hall, and there's going to be all this wonderful, delicious food. And if you don't eat it, Pastor Rolo's going to do his best to eat all of that. Why? Because we're hungry. Jesus experienced hunger. He fasted for 40 days in Luke chapter 2. And after those, or Luke, uh, yeah, Luke chapter 2. And why was he hungry? Because he was tempted for 40 days. If you didn't eat for 40 days, you would be hungry as well. Jesus also died in Luke 23. To die simply means your, your body doesn't work anymore. It doesn't function. It ceases to live. And Jesus also resurrected in a physical human body. His spirit wasn't resurrected. His body was resurrected. And this body is no longer subject to weakness and disease and death. This glorified body. And this same body ascended into heaven. And this same body will come back, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus is not coming back in spirit. Jesus is coming back as a human being. Now, whether you understand how a human body can be in heaven reigning, that's beyond you and me. I've got a finite brain. And my finite brain can only handle so much of God's glorious truth. I'm not called to understand everything perfectly. We are called to believe God's truth. Not necessarily understand everything of the mind of God. And so all these experiences prove that Jesus is fully human. Fully human. Not only that, did Jesus have a human mind? If you have a body, you should have a mind. Well, the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus increased in wisdom. According to Hebrews 5, verse 8, Jesus learned to be obedient to his parents. In his real human mind, he didn't even know the hour or the exact time of his return. So when we read that, that gives us a certain amount of consternation because now we're reading Jesus and he doesn't know the answer to the question and we're, we're bothered by that. But the reality is Jesus is operating from a human mind that has real human limitations. We're not talking about the divinity of Christ. That's next Sunday. We're talking about Jesus' human mind. Because in Mark 13, 32... Jesus says, but concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what do we have here? We have a, we have a real Savior by the name of Jesus, who's a real human, with real, a real soul, real human experiences, and before his crucifixion, his own soul was troubled. He says, now my soul is troubled as he's looking towards the cross. We understand when our souls are troubled. Jesus also marveled at the faith of the centurion. Remember the centurion came to Jesus, that his servant was going to die. 
And Jesus healed this servant from afar. And Jesus marveled at the faith of this centurion that he had not seen in all of Israel. When Jesus heard about the death of Lazarus, what did Jesus do? He wept. He cried. He understands the human experience, the plethora of emotions. He wept in John chapter 11, verse 35. Again, these are many, many examples throughout the Gospels, throughout the Bible, that proves that Jesus is a real human with a real soul and a real mind with real struggles and real problems that you and I have faced in our lives at some point. We don't have a robot representing us, praise God. We have a real human who's the real Savior for real sinners. And so how did the people see Jesus? These people, those closest to Jesus, saw Jesus as a real human being. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Bear with me. But these are the people closest to Jesus, by the way. This is the hometown of Nazareth. This is his family members. These are people who know Jesus very well. And this is what the scripture says in Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And so after Jesus was finished teaching in the Jewish church, the people said this, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? In other words, where did Jesus get God's magnificent truth and these mighty miracles? For them, they said this, is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And guess what? They weren't happy with him. They actually took offense at him. Verse 57. But Jesus says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. See, they were very happy with Jesus just being part of the human family. They were very happy that Jesus was a good man and a moral person and a carpenter's son. But that's all they saw him. They didn't see him as a prophet of God. They did not see him as the son of God. And so the people who knew him over 30 plus years of his life didn't think of Jesus as God, but just simply a good man, which is the point of the question. He is simply the carpenter's son. So was Jesus fully human? The answer, biblically, is yes. Not 99% human. He's 100% human. And why is this important? Because your salvation and my salvation is at stake. We cannot have anybody less than human represent us at the cross. And so was this necessary for Jesus to be fully human? And there's three basic answers that I want to give. Was it necessary for Jesus to be fully human? Three reasons. Number one, he's our representative obedience. Who else can obey God's law perfectly 
without any violation on your behalf. He's our representative obedience, where the first Adam sinned against God and plunged the entire human race into sin. The second Adam, Jesus, perfectly obeyed God his entire life and ministry. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is all referring to the first Adam in Genesis and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam got us in trouble. The second Adam pulled us out of that trouble by his own blood. The second reason why it was necessary for Jesus to be human, he's our substitute sacrifice. When there's a real violation, a transgression of God's law, that's sin, and sin must be paid full, not in partial payment, but in full. And that payment must be made by somebody who represents the human race fully. And so that person is Jesus Christ, who paid our penalty, our guilt, in full with his own blood. Jesus is our substitute sacrifice. This is known as the passive obedience of Christ. In Hebrews 2, verse 16, it says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. See, God is not concerned with the salvation of angels. God is concerned for the salvation of his own people. For sinners. For sinners who repent and trust in him. Therefore, he had to be made like us. We need to be careful with this language. Jesus was never created. Jesus was never created. Yes, he took on flesh, but he was never created. He is eternal, co-eternal with the Father. Once you say Jesus was created, you have now destroyed the gospel. I'll explain that next Sunday. But he was made or he took on human flesh so that he would step in as a sacrifice for us, for his people. And so again, Christmas is about the birth of Christ. But when we read the entire story, Jesus was born not to have a good life, but Jesus was born to die. That was the purpose of his life and of his ministry and his mission. Again, we need to put together Christmas and Resurrection Sunday together. And so Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's just a fancy word of saying that our sins are covered by the blood of another. And that blood of another has to be a qualified substitute, fully human and sinless. And the only person that can qualify is Jesus Christ. The third reason why it was necessary for Jesus to be fully human 
He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only mediator between God and man. If you're ever going to be forgiven, if you're ever going to have joy, peace, and hope, if you're ever going to get to heaven, it's only through Christ. It's only through Christ. Because see, in our natural state, mankind is sinful and wicked before God. We're automatically alienated alienated from God. And so there are two parties that are at enmity with one another. The holy God and sinful mankind. There is no relationship. Sinful humanity is alienated away from God. And so therefore a mediator is needed to bring two parties together. That only mediator in the Bible is Jesus. Is Jesus and Jesus alone. We needed Someone who could represent us to God, but we also needed somebody who could represent God to us. And that's only through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, For there is one God, not multiple gods. Yes, there's a lot of dead, foreign, false deities out there, but there's only one true living God, and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus is the one who qualifies as our perfect substitute. Can you imagine being tempted in the desert for 40 days, yet without sin? If you're tired, hungry, dehydrated, I promise you some of the worst sins that are in your heart will come out. And he did that for 40 straight days. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, who convicts me of sin? talking about the kingdom of God. Who convicts Jesus of sin? If you notice, everybody's quiet in John chapter 8 because Jesus is sinless. Jesus is the one who kept all of God's law. And if you remember in John chapter 18, Pilate comes to Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? As you say, it is. And he says, you are the king. And Pilate goes back to the crowd, and he says to the general audience, I find no fault in him. In other words, I find no sin in Jesus. He's not guilty of a sin. He's not guilty of a crime, but yet he dies a criminal's death. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the one who knew no sin. Jesus is the one without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He is the one who is holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who can qualify except Jesus? And so if you're not a Christian today, there's good news for you. If you believe that Jesus is fully human. But the question is, that's not the hard part. The question is, do you believe that he's sinless? Because if you don't believe that Jesus is sinless, then there's no hope for you. There is no hope of forgiveness for you. There's no hope of peace for you. There's no hope of heaven for you. If you say Jesus is a sinner, just like me. But if you say Jesus is sinless, and that he's holy, and that he's perfect, there's hope for you. Jesus is the one who is holy, who died for those who are unholy. If you believe and trust in Jesus, there is hope for you. 
And praise God for those of us who are Christians. We see that truth very clearly, do we not? We thank God for changing our hearts and illuminating our minds and showing us that Jesus fully is human and he is sinless. As I conclude here, in the, the original New Testament apostles, when they died after that first century, a new generation of leaders came in for the church, the apostolic fathers. And one of them was by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch. And this was within the first hundred years of Jesus' ministry. And he was one of the earliest defenders of orthodoxy against docetism. And he was also a disciple of the apostle John. And But this is what he says, quote, about docetism and heresy. Be deaf. In other words, don't listen to them. Be deaf, therefore, would anyone would speak to you apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who descended from the family of David, born of Mary, who truly was born, both of God and of the Virgin, truly took a body, for the Word became flesh and dwelt among us without sin. He ate and drank, truly suffered persecution under Pontius Pilate, and was truly, and not in appearance, crucified. He truly was crucified, and he truly died, and he was truly raised from the dead. So this is within the first 100 years of Jesus' ministry. Why is that important? Because many times when we think back in church history, and we go back in history, and we think about people during those biblical times, we think of them as archaic. We think of them as old and unsophisticated and uneducated, and that they don't know anything. I would argue those who are closer to those original biblical times and experiences were very educated and they knew exactly what to record for the next generation. And so for Ignatius of Antioch, he emphatically declared, Jesus is truly human, truly sinless, truly died, and he was truly resurrected. And so if we want to celebrate Christmas faithfully and biblically, then we need to confess and affirm that Jesus came in the flesh. That Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on a body. He took on flesh. Why? Because salvation depends on Christ really being a man who suffered, died, and resurrected so that those who are in Christ, yet they die they still live. So what's the relevance for us? Here's the relevance. Do you see Jesus as partially human? Do you see Jesus as an angel? How do you see Jesus? He is fully human. And here's the relevance for us. See, the root of docetism is this. Again, they don't have a problem with Jesus being divine. They don't even have a problem with the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. They have a problem with something perfect taking on an evil body from their perspective. And here's their motivation. They wanted to placate the world. They wanted to pacify the world by making the gospel message palatable to the world. 
Because for God to become man and to be persecuted, suffer, and die, that's illogical. That's unacceptable. The cross of Christ is foolishness. The crucifixion of the Savior is folly. So the entire root of docetism is this. I'm going to tell you about Jesus, but I'm going to take off the hard edges. I'm not really going to talk about sin. I'm going to, t- I'm going to remove the offense of the cross. Brothers and sisters, have we ever been tempted to be docetic by taking away the offense of the cross? Simply to keep a relationship and a friendship. Simply to keep family reunions going, but never talking about Jesus. Simply to be accepted by the world, which was the goal. To make the message palatable to the world so that they would be accepted. Have we ever been tempted to do such a thing? God forbid. And if we were to be honest, we have in many times, in many respects. But I want to encourage you, dear Christian, we are people of the book. We are pre-committed to the Holy Scriptures. We need to be faithful to God, not simply by reciting it, but by obeying it. We're not called to be men-pleasers. We're not called to take away the offense of the cross. We're called to make Christ great wherever we go. The Apostle Paul states that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly for Gentiles. But I'll end with this. Sermon in a sentence. We Christians are forgiven by God's grace. Not by works. Not by deeds. We are forgiven by God's grace because we have placed our faith and trust in someone very real, very human, fully human, in a real Savior who is truly human, truly sinless, and truly died and truly raised for us. If we say Jesus is not fully human and Jesus is not sinless, then we have lost the entire point of Christmas and there's no hope for us. I pray that we would be men and women of the book, that we be faithful until God calls us home We must never acquiesce to the ways of the world. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, O God, that you cannot lie and that you care for us in so many ways. And we see that clearly. You've given us Christ, the one and only Savior. Lord, if we were to be honest with you, we've been very docetic in our lives from time to time. We're tempted to make your message more palatable to the world by removing the offense of the cross. For that, O God, forgive us. Help us to hold to the truth of your word that Jesus, your one and only Son, is fully human and sinless. And our salvation is based on him, the one who lived and died for us. And we bless you. In Christ we pray. Amen.